Tyrol. He had just helped to orchestrate the biggest leak in the history of the world, only this time the embarrassment was not to a poor East African nation, but to the most powerful country on earth. It is that story, the transformation from anonymous hacker to one of the most discussed people in the world, at once reviled, celebrated, and lionized, sought after, imprisoned, and shunned, that this book sets out to tell. Within a few short years of starting out, Assange had been catapulted from the obscurity of his life in Nairobi, dribbling out leaks that nobody much noticed, to publishing a flood of classified documents that went to the heart of America's military and foreign policy operations. From being a marginal figure invited to join panels at geek conferences, he was suddenly America's public enemy number one. A new media messiah to some, he was a cyber-terrorist to others. As if this wasn't dramatic enough, in the middle of it all, two women in Sweden accused him of rape. To coin a phrase, you couldn't make it up. Since leaving Nairobi, Assange had grown his ambitions for the scale and potential of WikiLeaks. In the company of other hackers, he had been developing a philosophy of transparency. He and his fellow technologists had already succeeded in one aim. He had made WikiLeaks virtually indestructible and thus beyond legal or cyber attack from any one jurisdiction or source. Lawyers who were paid exorbitant sums to protect the reputations of wealthy clients and corporations admitted, in tones tinged with both frustration and admiration, that WikiLeaks was the one publisher in the world they couldn't gag. It was very bad for business. At The Guardian, we had our own reasons to watch the rise of WikiLeaks with great interest and some respect. In two cases involving Barclays Bank and Trafigura, the site had ended up hosting documents which the British courts had ordered to be concealed. There was a bad period in 2008-9 when the High Court in London got into the habit of not only banning the publication of documents of high public interest, but simultaneously preventing the reporting of the existence of the court proceedings themselves and the parties involved in them. One London firm of solicitors overreached itself when it even tried to extend the ban to the reporting of parliamentary discussion of material sitting on the WikiLeaks site. Judges were as nonplussed as global corporations by this new publishing phenomenon. In one hearing in March 2009, the High Court in London decided that no one was allowed to print documents revealing Barclays' tax avoidance strategies, even though they were there for the whole world to read on the WikiLeaks website. The law looked a little silly. But this new form of indestructible publishing brought sharp questions into focus. For every trafigura, there might be other cases where WikiLeaks could be used to smear or destroy someone. That made Assange a very powerful figure. The fact that there were grumbles among his colleagues about his autocratic and secretive style did not allay the fears about this new media baron. 
The questions kept coming. Who was this shadowy figure playing God? How could he and his team be sure of particular documents' authenticity? Who was determining the ethical framework that decided some information should be published and some not? All this meant that Assange was in many respects, more perhaps than he welcomed, in a role not dissimilar to that of a conventional editor. As this book describes the spectacular bursting of WikiLeaks into the wider global public eye and imagination began with a meeting in June 2010 between The Guardian's Nick Davis and Assange. Davis had sought out Assange after reading the early accounts that were filtering out about the leak of a massive trove of military and diplomatic documents. He wanted to convince Assange that this story would have more impact and meaning if he was willing.